Hello and welcome to today's Institute for Healthcare Improvements Author in the Room conference call. My name is Angela and I will be your conference operator for today's call. Right now, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session and instructions on how to participate will follow at that time. As a reminder, this call is being recorded. If you should need operator assistance at any time, please press star then zero on your touchtone phone. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's call, Madge Kaplan, Senior Communications Strategist and former Editor and Health Correspondent for National Public Radio. Madge, you may go ahead. Thank you, Angela. Hello and welcome everyone to Author in the Room, a project of JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, IHI. Author in the Room is made possible by a generous grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. My name indeed is Madge Kaplan. I'm Senior Communications Strategist at IHI and I will moderate today's discussion. And all these discussions, Author in the Room is designed to translate knowledge, what is published in an article, into actionable steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care. Today we welcome our featured author, Dr. William C. Taylor, discussant of the article, A 71-Year-Old Woman Contemplating a Screening Colonoscopy, that was published in the March 8, 2006 issue of JAMA. Dr. Taylor is an Associate Professor of Medicine, Harvard Medical School, and a Senior Physician and member of the Division of General Medicine and Primary Care at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. Dr. Taylor has served in numerous teaching roles at Harvard Medical School, including initiating the prevention component of the new pathway curriculum in 1985. Since 2001, he has served as course director for Patient Doctor 2, the physical diagnosis course at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Taylor has published papers on medical education, clinical epidemiology, medical interviewing, patient-doctor relationship, decision analysis, cost-effectiveness analysis, screening for cancer, tuberculosis prevention, and cholesterol reduction. Welcome, Bill Taylor. Well, thank you. Nice to be here. Great. Also with us today to help focus this discussion of today's article with an eye toward clinical improvement is Dr. Chuck Kylo. Dr. Kylo is CEO of Greenfield Health in Portland, Oregon. He's a fellow with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and a practicing internist. Welcome, Chuck Kylo. Thank you, Madge. The purpose of Author in the Room is for you to hear directly from an author, sometimes it's authors, about research findings that can improve patient care and clinical practice. Making the leap from what's on the page to changing how care is delivered can be daunting. That's why each Author in the Room call draws upon the expertise of a clinical improvement expert such as Chuck Kylo, who's with us today. So here's how the hour will proceed. Bill Taylor will spend about 10 minutes summarizing the case study and the issues raised. Chuck Kylo will then take about 10 minutes to draw out some implications for the real-world practice setting, and he'll set the stage for us to take your questions and comments. We hope to get to those questions and comments no later than at the half-hour mark, and we look forward to some discussion. To those of you who have dialed in, I want to stress how important your participation is in these calls. This is a great forum in which to get clarification on anything in the article itself. You've got the opportunity to speak directly with the author and to contemplate with others on the phone the significance of the findings and the steps you might take, hopefully even some steps tomorrow. There are about 70 organizations
organizations on the phone with us today. That number might have climbed in the last few minutes. Some members of the media may be present on today's call on a background basis only. And one other note, this call is being recorded and will be made available on the IHI and JAMA websites as a streaming audio file and as a downloadable MP3 file that you may access via iTunes. The complete details and instructions are available under the program section of IHI.org, the May 31st Author in the Room call. Please note as well that once you subscribe to IHI Author in the Room on iTunes, some previous Author in the Room calls are also available as podcasts, including a call on April 19th about all or none measurement. Okay, got that out of the way. Welcome all. Let's get started. Let me again introduce Dr. Bill Taylor, who's our guide today and in the March 8th issue of JAMA on the merits of an otherwise healthy older person undergoing a colonoscopy for screening purposes. Lots of interesting issues there. Welcome, Bill Taylor. Well, thank you. Um, this may be a little different from other author in the room discussions because I'm not presenting new research findings. I'm a primary care doctor and I'm trying to bring previous results and, pre and previously made recommendations to clinical care. The case is that, as you said, of a 71-year-old woman who has not had a screening colonoscopy, but whose primary care physician has recommended one. And it turns out that the patient is under, uh, reluctant to undergo the colonoscopy, and therefore the, the issue that's brought up in the case. And the question is, how should that get addressed? Uh, according to current national recommendations, uh, everyone over the age of 50 should be screened for colon cancer. The national recommendations don't give a date at which to stop but it's clear that at some point someone becomes old enough that a screening modality done today for a potential benefit in the future might not make as much sense. So that's sort of an underlying issue at age 71. Is this patient old enough that that should become a concern? Uh, for Ms. G, the patient uh, under consideration, she's a rather healthy 71-year-old, so it doesn't look like one would expect her to be dying in the near future, but that issue is, is part of the discussion. The national Experts tell us that everyone over 50 should be screened for colon cancer, that uh, there are three different recommended modalities. One is a colonoscopy, which is generally recommended to be done every 10 years. Alternatively, uh, flexible sigmoidoscopy can be done every five years, or the third uh, recommended screening modality is fecal occult blood testing uh, every year. And by fecal occult blood testing, what is not meant is a rectal exam in the doctor's office and checking the stools obtained in the rectal exam, but instead what is meant is the six-stool test where the patient obtains the fecal occult blood specimen at home, sends it into the doctor's office where it is, as they say, developed. Uh, this patient had undergone uh, a fecal occult blood testing, not actually on an every year basis, but we're told every year or every other year, but the primary care physician has been pressuring the patient, according to the patient, to consider uh, colonoscopy. So that's the, the issue before us. Um, the the real-life decision, I think, as a primary care doctor, involves several nuances that aren't usually addressed by the expert groups. One is that the expert groups take on individual questions like, how do you screen for colon cancer? Nobody takes on the issue of if you have 20 or 30 or 40 minutes in the office for a a periodic health review, how do you fill that time? What's the appropriate use of it? And how much 
should be devoted to the question, for instance, of screening for colorectal cancer. The expert groups tell us that of these three modalities, since they're considered to be equivalent, that what should be done is one should make an individualized recommendation depending on the patient's preferences and available resources. So behind that is the question of how, how much do you discuss this with the patient? What sort of uh, discussion is reasonable to figure out what's appropriate for this individual patient? How much do doctors revert or should doctors revert to some automatic recommendation like it's time to get your colonoscopy and take it from there? That's uh, sort of embedded uh, in the case. The other issue is, is the one referred to earlier about the woman's age, all screening has to do with something that you do now for a potential benefit in the future. And we don't always incorporate this evaluation of a risk or a cost at the present time for the possibility of future benefit into how we think about these issues and how we discuss them. But it's, it's fundamental to the issue, the screening enterprise, and it comes up particularly with an older patient where uh, there's a possibility the patient might not be here in the time that you would assume otherwise there might be the potential benefit. There also may be, even if the patient is here, different patients might weigh what's the value of a benefit off in the future, particularly off in the distant future, versus a cost or an inconvenience uh, or a risk that's taken uh, in the short term. Those are the, the issues before us. I was uh, encouraged in writing this paper to take a position about what I would tell the patient in real life, what I would do would be to talk to the patient. And, uh, you know, the, the unidimensional, here's a case, what do you do, doesn't allow that, uh, the fullness of that opportunity. But what you hear in response to, we recommend some kind of screening for colon cancer, one of the things we uh, recommend can be a colonoscopy. What you hear in response to that may be much more important than a bottom line, which is something like, uh, if you're reluctant to get the colonoscopy, it's fine just to get the fecal occult blood test every year, which is a shortcut answer, uh, you know, on the printed page, but we can do better, I think, in this discussion. I'm also very interested to hear from Chuck Kylo because uh, although I think I know something about how to be a doctor, um, Chuck knows much more than I about how to implement systems change to bring this uh, uh, into uh, uh, practice. So uh, I'll be doing some listening as well as some talking. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Bill Taylor. Uh, really interesting, uh, getting us going on this topic. Um, all right, uh, Chuck, we turn to you now, uh, Dr. Chuck Kylo, uh, helping us sort of put this into that real world practice setting uh, in our preparation for today's call. Uh, you've already kind of raised some interesting issues uh, about how we can go about this in a sort of more systematic way. Uh, so eager to hear uh, what you're thinking. Thank you very much, Madge, and uh, thank you, Bill, and greetings, everybody. Um, I'm really anxious to get to the question and answer part of the call today because it's going to be fascinating to hear uh, your thoughts and your uh, your questions for uh, for Bill. Uh, the challenge we have as providers, as everybody on the call knows, is to take lessons uh, from uh, either studies in journals like JAMA or review articles, such as the I think the brilliant review article that Bill uh, wrote for us here, and use them uh, to make changes and improvements in our everyday practice uh, to improve patients. Care. That's what we're all after. Uh, and, uh, and so that's the nature of these calls, take this information and try to get it into place. 
uh, at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, the way we go about doing that, about taking that knowledge and getting it in place, uh, is via a powerful tool which is called the Model for Improvement. Some of you may have heard about it. It's a tool to help us achieve more rapid improvement, and the model really is uh, disarmingly simple. In essence, it is the scientific method in practice. It's uh, learning very quickly from specific changes that we take, uh, changes applied to the management of our practices, the management of our processes, uh, and learning from the results of those changes, uh, studying the results of those changes, and then leveraging that towards uh, improved outcomes. It is the system, as, as Bill said, that determines the outcomes, not just our individual efforts, but it is the system, and therefore we should focus on the system. Uh, and the model for improvement really has two parts. Uh, the first part is where you decide explicitly what it is you want to accomplish, your changes. And then the second part is that idea of testing those changes. And I just want to review this very quickly because it is important for us to think about how we take this knowledge and get it into practice. So the first of the two, uh, the three, uh, the two parts, uh, that of understanding what it is that you want to accomplish really has three components. The first is a statement of aims uh, with a specific goal and time frame in mind. For example, in this case, we want to achieve 90% appropriate colon cancer screening in our clinic uh, within the next year. Uh, the second component really is establishment of measures, and in this case, it's going to be fascinating to talk about measures because our measurement systems around um, these issues like colon cancer screening, uh, even in the era of electronic medical records, can be a challenge. But nonetheless, we need to be able to measure appropriateness in some way if we're going to know that we're getting and moving towards our aim. And then third, we have to identify testable changes that will uh, help to lead us to that improvement. And we'll spend a lot of time, I think, on the call talking about those testable changes. The second part of the model really is this idea of testing changes, and it is in quality improvement jargon called the plan, do, study, act cycle, the PDSA cycle. You plan a test, do the test, collect some data, and then study the results, and then you roll that up into the next set of tests, much like you would do in uh, learning to ride a bicycle or something, something along those lines. If the language of the PDSA cycle doesn't sit well with you, that's fine. Just think of it as the explicit, rapid, action-oriented learning that's very much like the scientific method in action. Uh, the last topic then is when are you ready to implement the changes? When do you have the confidence that the things that you have done, the things that you have tested are ready for prime time, ready to be spread to your whole clinic or to other clinics that you help to manage? And the, obvious, the answer obviously depends on many factors. Uh, the primary one, though, is the success of the test. Have you achieved the results and have you done so with tests that are transportable to other clinics around you. And again, we'll talk more about that. So uh, let's move at this point from this somewhat academic discussion towards some real recommendations based on uh, what Bill has, uh, uh, the data that Bill has given us. Now, uh, we all know, I think Bill's article is very, very uh, clear in, um, in terms of review of the data, the challenge that we all have is the systemization of this data. How do we take it, how do we take these ideas, and get them into practice reliably so that we all achieve very high performance? Therein lies the challenge, and I think this is a fascinating case uh, or area in which to discuss that. Bill, do you want to start off talking about, uh, about some of the changes that you might uh, suggest based on, uh, on your review? Um, well, one, first of all, I'd say you're probably 
better at that part than I am. One thing that happens in my practice is we have an electronic record and we have a piece of the record that we refer to with old terminology. We call it the screening sheet, going back to the days when there used to be a piece of paper in the chart where we kept track of the screening uh, information. And we have uh, in the screening sheet a, 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 an item that says colonoscopy. Uh, we could fill in there fecal occult blood testing or we could fill in flexible sigmoidoscopy. So it's basically a column uh, designated for colorectal cancer screening. But we don't have something that flags the, the charts that tells us which ones uh, have not had this done or which ones haven't been done. It's really up to the individual clinician to go look at that sheet, figure out what's there, enter the material there that tells us what's been done. So I think in my own practice, we have a way to go in how we could uh, make some of the systems improvements that you're talking about. Yeah, and that's, that in and of itself is a fascinating area, just thinking about all the steps required to get the data into the system so that your IT system, your electronic health record, knows that something was done, whether it was just a conversation or it was fecal occult blood testing or it was a colonoscopy and what the results were. Yeah. Uh, because in most of our systems in the electronic world, you have to hand input that information, unlike hopefully the glycosidated hemoglobin that is done at the local lab. Hopefully that information flows in electronically and populates the right data field. That generally doesn't happen with things like colonoscopy. So there are many steps to get the data into the system so that you can ask the system who is due for what, in this case, colon cancer screening. Well, Madge, I'm really uh, interested to hear what the, uh, uh, what, uh, what the participants uh, are thinking about, what questions they have. I think we should just go ahead and move to, uh, to their questions at this point. Okay, that sounds fine. Thank you both, uh, Bill Taylor and Chuck Kylo. Uh, the uh, article in question, the clinical crossroads section of uh, JAMA that devoted uh, space to this issue really lays out a whole range of, of different issues and discussion as you both are also sort of filling in right now. Um, and I think we're kind of at a place where, you know, lots of uh, new innovations maybe could be applied here. Uh, to help um, move this kind of uh, um, need uh, through the healthcare system in a very good way that's uh, beneficial to patients and helpful to providers. So we're now eager uh, to hear what's on the mind of those minds of those who have dialed in today. Uh, so we want to encourage your questions for Bill Taylor and Chuck Kylo. Uh, and also, if you have experience uh, in this area and have been working on improvements uh, in your own practice. We'd love to hear about that. So, Angela, let's go to uh, questions and we'll see uh, what folks are thinking about. Thank you. If you have a question, plus zero, then the one key on your touchtone phone. This will place you into a queue. One by one, the lines will be open, so you may each ask your question. So, again, that zero, one on your touchtone phone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, press zero, then the two key. And our first question comes from Charles McLean with the University of Vermont. Your line is now open. Uh, the question I have is around the issue of um, complying with recommendations for screening. One of the issues that we look at is was a colonoscopy done or was a fecal occult blood testing done? For a lot of people who are looking at screening, they may not want screening. PSA is a good example of something where patients may opt for it or against it. And one of the things to document is not so much was the TESA done, but was an informed discussion 
had with the patient about what they want to do. And what I'm, my question is, are there good decision aids to help decide with the patient whether or not they want to be screened for colon cancer, and if so, what modality best suits their needs? All right, interesting question. Uh, fits right in to what we're trying to figure out today. Uh, Bill, uh, Bill Taylor, you want to start with that? Yeah, I'm not familiar with decision aids for the colorectal cancer screening question. You alluded to the PSA question. I know there uh, Al Mully, uh, the Mass General, and uh, his colleagues up in Dartmouth have developed uh, uh, tools that are helpful in making the prostate cancer screening decision, but I don't know of any for uh, screening for colorectal cancer. The okay. colorectal cancer screening question, it, it may be in part that the colorectal cancer screening question lends itself less to the decision tool uh, approach because it's less controversial. There are at least data from randomized trials that if people are screened for colon cancer, they'll decrease their death rate uh, from colon cancer. We don't have data like that yet, as you know, I'm sure, for uh, for prostate cancer. So the as, as difficult as some of the decisions are in the realm of colorectal cancer screening, they're even more difficult, I believe, for the prostate screening question. Chuck, you want to take a stab at that? Well, Bill and I actually talked about this in preparation for the call, and, I, and uh, he, he summarized it nicely. You know, it, it wouldn't be difficult to create, it should not be difficult to create such a decision aid, which took into consideration uh, both, uh, you know, several factors such as age and family history. And you'd want to you'd want to incorporate some of that in if you were going to really customize it per the patient. If you weren't, then you could just have a standardized video that talked about some of the issues and allow the patient to make a decision. I think the challenge is to work those things into one's workflow in a busy office practice. And how do you do that? And then how do you follow up on it? How do you make sure that the patient viewed it? And and they're just a tremendous. While it seems like it'd be relatively simple to sit somebody down in front of a computer and have them watch something and then follow up with them, uh, we know that every time we try to make a maneuver like that, it adds a lot of other aspects of work uh, comes along with it. And uh, so I think those are are some of the challenges. And I think it's because of that. And uh, again, Bill and I talked about this also. It's because of that. I think most of us have in fact developed our own routine, our own standard that we sort of say, here's what we do in this practice. Uh, and if somebody really has a different opinion, if one of our patients have a diff have a, has a different opinion, then we're willing to talk about it. Otherwise, we develop our own standard and we sort of go with that. Now, that's not necessarily the right thing to do. On the other hand, standardization is such a powerful mechanism of higher performance that it may be the best way to go about uh, achieving high screening rates, particularly, as Bill said, in colon cancer screening, which is very different than prostate cancer screening, where the data is much more solid for colon cancer screening. Interesting. Uh, Charles McLean, is there something you wanted to follow up with, having heard from both of them? No, I agree entirely, and I think the concept of standardization is one that I'm, I use, everyone I think uses, and to me, the strength of this particular program that you're offering right now would be at the end of this session to have somebody say, okay, let's develop a nationally acceptable set of decision aids. And there are many different types of people. Some will want something printed they could take home and read. Some may want a video. Some may want a web-based thing. Some may want an audio version. I think the advantage of a group like IHI would be to help develop 
something that everybody in the country could use. It's an interesting uh, suggestion, and uh, perhaps there's even, uh, I don't know so specifically here at IHI, but perhaps there's even some work that may be going on on this already. Chuck, what do you think? Well, well those things do exist. So if you go to UpToDate, uh, many of the folks on the right. client will be familiar with UpToDate. I have no financial connection to UpToDate. <laughs> um, you know, uh, there, I believe that there is a monograph on colon cancer screening, which is written for patients. There are other companies, one that I am familiar with because they're here in Portland, Oregon, is a uh, company called WiredMD, Wired.md, and they have a whole host of videos in several different languages uh, that you can uh, put in your clinic and on your computers, and you can even write um, information prescriptions for patients to view at home on a computer or at the library if they're if they don't have a home computer, uh, and it has things on screening colonoscopy that does sort of goes goes through your options and things along those lines or what is a colonoscopy and and things like that. So there are I think a variety of existing resources. The challenge that we always have is how do you incorporate those into our workflow in an efficient manner? Okay. Could I make a comment as well? This is Bill. Okay, go ahead. Um, yes. Another element to be uh, cognizant of and, and worried about is what's the message we give to our patients when we orient them towards uh, a, a written text, something that's on the computer, something we could say do from your home computer at the library. What about the portion of our patients who are don't have access to a computer, who are not comfortable using a computer, who are illiterate, where English is not, the, you mentioned, you know, available in other languages, but we always have to be aware of the patients who may need us the most may be the ones who get a, a, a message we might not intend when we implement improvements like this. So we have, I would love to see a system where the people who could avail themselves of decision aids like this do so and free up the time of clinicians to spend their time with the people who really need them. Uh, who may need a discussion because these uh, decision aids might not be uh, quite as accessible for these people. All right, very good point. Okay, uh, thank you for your question, Charles McLean. And Angela, is there somebody else in queue? Yes, our next question comes from Carl Bauerlin with the Palo Alto Medical, excuse me, Palo Alto Medical Foundation. Your line is now open. Okay. Hello, welcome to Author in the Room. Hi, thank you for this discussion. This is actually Ali Shafai. I'm a physician at the Palo Medical Foundation. Carl Bauerlin is our uh, project manager for this group that's working on colon cancer uh, screening improvement uh, at our clinic. And we've been working on this since October of 2005. What, uh, what we decided to do was to work with uh, two of our newer physicians who have smaller panels and try to work on improving their rates. We have the luxury of having an electronic medical record as Dr. Taylor pointed out, it, it completely depends on um, correct input of the data. Uh, the data that we had at the time was that we only had 11% screening rate for those, that small subpopulation of our panel. Um, and we've been working on improving that rate up to 50%. Right now it's up to about 30 But the biggest jump has been in um, making sure that we have correct data and going back and doing chart reviews and figuring out what the actual screening rates are rather than what's been reported. So um, what my question is um, whether anyone that you're aware of has come up with systems that have, um, through the PDSA cycle, been proven to be um, effective and also uh, uh, scalable, if you will. One of the challenges we've had is 
what we initially started with was uh, telephone outreach for that small subpopulation to see how that wor works. And unfortunately, we didn't have very good success, and we also realized that it was very um, labor-intensive. Um, but the few things that were mentioned, one, you know, presenting the data to the patient to uh, really help them make an informed decision, and whether uh, any type of, it sounds like uh, there was a referral to a monograph up-to-date uh, put together, but I'm wondering if anyone studied this, has studied this where uh, there's specific data that's presented to the patient, you know, this is your risk of uh, cancer, um, colorectal cancer. Uh, if you had a colonoscopy that's negative, you reduce it by this much. And if it's been studied at a large scale to see if that makes a difference in encouraging patients to get this done. Um, and then also the video question and the outreach question, whether you guys are aware of um, these being done at a large scale and how successful they've been. Do you think your own uh, work here is kind of reaching a point of, of any sort of a scale-up or kind of broader application? Uh, so far, no. Okay. Uh, I, think we, I think the number one thing that we found is that uh, coming up with a system where um, the data is recorded properly and efficiently is probably the most um, effective single measure to improve screening rates, but as we know, that's just a false that's just making sure that we are uh, recording data properly, not not necessarily doing any public good, if you will. I understand. Okay. Well, uh, Bill uh, Taylor, uh, you, shall we start with you? Uh, thoughts about uh, the, the the question here and the comments? Yeah, um, I'm not aware of anybody having studied these different modalities uh, of uh, improving rates. I'll turn to Chuck and see if he knows. Uh, I, well, I think that you know what, what has been studied is shared decision making, but they again they tend to be around more controversial issues, um, and uh, I think the I think in some ways the issue with colon cancer is because we all would agree that the data is so positive that everybody should have it in one way or another, even if it's fecal occult blood testing, which is about as not invasive as, as you can you can have it. That, um, that the standard ought to be that everybody has the conversation when they when they hit 50, uh, and uh, if they choose after an informed conversation uh, not to have it, which I certainly have patients who have done that, despite my encouragement and everything else, uh, and I give them I give them the fecal occult blood uh, uh, cards, and they you know they don't come back in the mail and stuff like that. Is I think as long as I've documented it, uh, I feel comfortable that I have done my job. Uh, in uh, informing them. Now, as opposed to prostate cancer, where I think that I have to have a pretty detailed discussion, my discussion around colon cancer screening is pretty minimal. It is, hey, you're 50, unless they have a family history, in which case we have the conversation earlier. Hey, you're 50, it's time for your colon cancer screening. And there isn't a whole lot more about it. There, there, are, there are almost, in my conversations, aren't any options. <laughs> you know, And they accept that perfectly fine. Um, but those, I, 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 have an issue, I have an issue with that, and that is that if, if, we, if colonoscopy is a much uh, more proven measure, shouldn't we be spending more time rather than less time explaining it to the patients? And maybe it is that we're not really talking about, and talking about it in the right way to convince more of our patients that this is important to get done. Well, we, we as an example, and Bill, again, Bill said that the data doesn't differentiate. I mean, any, any one of the three is okay. For standardization reasons, my, me and my partners, as an example, my partners and I, as an example, um, just decided that we were going to go with colonoscopy as our standard. 
that's not necessarily right, but it is what we decided, and it allows us, because we've standardized, uh, to do have a similar conversation with all of our patients in a similar workflow. Right. Uh, and so, uh, again, that's the standardization. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm not referring yeah. to the making a choice between colonoscopy, sigmoidoscopy, and SLBT. We've had, developed a similar standard of colonoscopy as well. But what I'm wondering is, is the amount of time that you spend trying to convince a patient through different modalities, let's say, is that going to have a payoff on the other end of the patient complying with your recommendation, or does it seem like, you know, some patients are just made up, they've made up their mind that they are not going to get this procedure done? Um, I see it as a, uh, as a clinical issue. It's a way to find out about a patient. So it may be an opportunity for discussion. So I would have the same conversation that Chuck does and say, you're 50 years old, the experts now recommend that you be screened for colon cancer. You know, what's generally thought to be the best test is colonoscopy. How does that sound to you? And some people are, are quite versed in what this is and say, sign me up. Others are quite versed in what it is and say, no way. And then you can ask more. You can find out. And then, uh, you know, it's, uh, you can use the uh, Prochaska and Declement, you know, the stages of behavior change. Is it a pre-contemplator? Is it somebody's thinking about it? What's the barrier? You can, you know, it's the luxury you have as a clinician uh, is to take a moment and find that out. And perhaps there will be a change in outlook, you know, uh, over time, you know, not even over a long time. If it's okay with you, thank you very much for your thank comments you. and questions. Uh, we've got some others uh, in line. Uh, thanks so much uh, for, for contributing. Okay, Angela, let's go to someone else. Thank you. Our next question comes from Masahito Jimbo with the University of Michigan. Your line is now open. Hello. Welcome to Author in the Room. University of Michigan, are you there? Whoops. I don't know if we, maybe we'll come back to them, Angela? Yes, we'll move on to the next one. And it comes from Caroline Day with UCSD Division of Family Medicine. Okay. Your line thanks. is now open. Hello, um, thank you for entertaining a question. I'm actually involved in some research looking at our family medicine sites in using um, decisional aids put together by Dartmouth Foundation for Informed Medical Decision Making looking at colon cancer screening. Um, and the interesting thing that I found is that, yes, we're trying to get people screened, but obviously, as you've noted, this is a stepwise process. And realistically, there's no way we can do any justice giving people the right information to make that decision by trying to do it in our 20-minute visits. Um, we had a kind of large-scale um, observational study looking at a single clinic for a month with patients being offered the decisional aid from staff or their physician or a follow-up phone call to see what patients' reflections were on the conversations that they had had. And interestingly enough, for people who've had colon cancer screening, there was a large number of people that still wanted to see the decisional aid, um, <laughs> feeling as if they had been kind of pushed to a test that they didn't really understand. Mm -hmm. And so my question is, you know, really what are we trying to achieve? Does it make any sense for us to maintain a hold on the information that patients need in the process of patient care versus really trying to build systems where patients can get information pre-digested before we can do our real work of helping them to personalize it and um, do the hard work of coming down to what they want to proceed with, what decision they're going to make. Sure. Thank you so much. Interesting issue. Uh, Bill Taylor? 
Well, that's a fascinating uh, point that you make. It, it, I mean, it gets to do with the fundamental question of uh, what information does a clinician need, what information does a patient need, what piece of that uh, process belongs to the clinician, what piece belongs to the patient. We have a, a notion that the uh, old authoritarian model where the doctor tells the patient what to do uh, is uh, no longer uh, one that any of us would uh, choose to adhere to, but uh, what is shared decision-making? I mean, there's a, a notion that uh, Don Berwick was uh, instrumental in developing a couple decades ago that Im that's embedded in the idea of decision analysis that says it's the clinician's job to know what are the things that might happen and how likely are they, and it's the patient's job to assign values to the outcomes that might occur, and then the clinician is supposed to put all that together into the optimal decision for the patient. But many patients aren't comfortable limiting their role to the values about the outcomes. They want to know about the data and they want to be participate much more actively in the decision. I think that's not every patient. And part of the challenge of clinical medicine is to figure that out on a case-by-case -case basis and try to provide what the individual patient might need. And you may not be able to do that in 20 minutes. People may need to go elsewhere, read, study, come back. That may be part of the process. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Chuck? Oh, it was, great. it was a great response and a great question that uh, Carolyn raised. And uh, I think it's right. I think you have to customize it, all these things based on the individual and based on the situation because different individuals individuals respond differently depending on the situation. But uh, in our practice, uh, you know, we really try to push the limits on getting people involved in their decision-making and uh, sort of set ourselves up to do that. And it's in the there, – there are a lot of interesting observations that come out of it. Uh, I think that people have been for so long not used to being incorporated in the decision-making that it is somewhat novel for them at the outset to be incorporated. But then it seems to wear off. One of my, one of my patients is a uh, CFO of a major international company, and so he's a pretty bright guy. And I'll never forget I was talking to him about his antihypertensives and some options, you know. Uh, and he stops me and he says, for gosh sakes, Chuck, you're my doctor. Just tell me what to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you know, so there is there is a lot of that. I mean, and I'm fully I'm fully bought into patient-centeredness and all that, and we've set up our whole practice to be that way. But the observations, when you really push it, are are uh, sometimes are interesting. Right, exactly. You have to have those critical moments when you can ask uh, your patient, TMI, too much information? <laughs> that would be a lot here. Carolyn, do you, do you have any uh, follow-up uh, thoughts uh, based on uh, Bill and Chuck's uh, comments? Yeah, I guess I have one follow-up question. It seems to me that there's been a lot of progress made in, say, doing informed consent before procedures and having a standard method of documenting what exactly is discussed and what the outcomes are. Are you aware of any sort of quick and dirty way to be standardized in how we document this because around colon cancer screening my experience has been the conversation has never always ended in one visit that oftentimes you come back to it you've kind of planted the seed with the first visit and then you need to come back after they've digested either what you said or other things that they've run across and it just seems like we'd have a lot better time with measurement if we had some standard way of kind of documenting what was discussed, what patients' questions are, and how we're going to come back to it as kind of a systems way to keep ourselves better honest in the whole process. Sounds uh, very valuable. Uh, Chuck, any thoughts on that? Well, documenting all that is a real challenge, and I think we our, systems, our system capabilities, the average electronic health record, falls far short of that today. 
Um, so uh, most electronic health records do have some sort of flow sheet, you know, where you can input the data that, you know, the colonoscopy was done and it was negative on this date. And some of the systems will be connected to the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force guidelines. So if this system knows that that's in there, it'll, you know, it'll tell you that the next colonoscopy is due in 10 years or something like that. So we, in our system, we both use that, but we also have a prevention box that is a part of all of our electronic notes. Uh, and, uh, and so we write down you know, the date that we discussed it with somebody or that we recommended it. And because that's a part of all of our notes and therefore all of our workflow to, at least for every visit, glance down at that prevention box to see if they're due for anything, um, we will tend to have that conversation repeatedly. Uh, and because uh, a lot of times people forget, they've had people who are out of the country for a year, lots of different reasons why they don't get their colonoscopy on their 50th birthday, you know. Mm -hmm. And so we keep coming back to that. So it's 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 a set of measurement systems to know that it was done and then a documentation system that reminds you at least that you had the conversation or recommended the procedure, whether it's screening mammography or screening colon cancer uh, for colon cancer. I don't think any of the systems that I've seen are perfect in that regard, and I don't know what you guys are using at uh, UCSD in terms of your, like, your EHR. Okay. Um, all right. Thank you so much, uh, Carolyn. Good luck with your research. <laughs> well, we're eager to hear more about that, and uh, we'll move on to another caller, Angela. Thank you. Our next question comes from Paul Grossman with UCLA. Your line is now open. Oh, um, hi. Um, I have a question that's actually kind of related to um, Carolyn. So I was wondering if you could talk about the metrics that are likely to be used by pay-for-performance programs to assess uh, cancer screening rates. And then um, also I was hoping you could do um, just a short overview of um, the article that was uh, um, cited um, uh, by Dan Merenstein about winners and losers. Okay, so let's see. Let's start about kind of metrics related to pay for performance. Uh, anyone want to grab hold of that? That would have to be Chuck. <laughs> well, Chuck, you know, uh, uh, Paul, you're in you're in uh, California, and I do a decent amount of work in California, and so I'm familiar with some of the P for P programs. Uh, but I don't know the specific metric around colon cancer screening because I know that it is uh, uh, it is it's hard for uh, the insurers to use their own data to measure that, particularly if fecal occult blood testing is being done because most practices don't bill for that, uh, and they drive most of the P4P data off of off of billing uh, billing uh, codes. And uh, plus, if the person comes to you and they're your patient and they were, or they switch insur insurances and you know the screening was done five years ago but it hasn't been done yet, uh, it, it makes for a messy set of measures. Uh, for the insurers to get their arms around. Having said that, I don't know what the specific metrics are. California is where, or in Massachusetts, is where most of that is taking place. So I don't know if there's anybody on the phone from California that could help us understand what the, what the P4P metrics are, if they're being used for, for this kind of screening at present. They may not be. Okay. All right. We'll we'll see. Uh, and um, we'll see if anybody uh, has any thoughts on that or maybe has some of that information. Paul, Paul and, do you uh, know? And the, well, the other half yeah. of the question had to do with that winners and losers reference, right. and that was an article about a uh, a, a resident who was uh, uh, got into trouble with the law through a malpractice suit for uh, uh, having a careful discussion with a patient about prostate cancer screening. At the end of a full discussion and careful documentation, electing not to screen with a 
prostate-specific antigen uh, blood test, a patient later developed prostate cancer, sued the doctor, and was successful. Uh, and the, the doctor wrote about this in JAMA. Okay. Uh, do you remember which issue of JAMA that was in? Um, it's in the references, if you can give me okay. a second. Okay. Well, we'll uh, all right. That's something maybe we can get into one of the web-based discussion groups. Fine. Um, okay. Thank you very much for your questions and interest. Uh, Angela, anyone else in queue? Yes. And as a reminder, I'd like to remind them if you'd like to ask a question, that's zero one on your touchtone phone. And our next question comes from Cynthia Way with Canadian Str Strategy for Cancer Control. Your line is now open. Uh, thank you very much. I think some of my uh, question was addressed by, I think, the second and third caller. Um, so probably I just have more of a, a comment. We're obviously structured differently in Canada. I represent a BC Yukon office, and within BC, we have approved government guidelines for screening, which is uh, low-risk patients, the FOBT and colonoscopy every so many years. So we're, we're structured very differently. And, and where we're going or where we're heading is looking at a population-based program for the province, which is similar to our screening uh, mammography program, which is ma managed by the BC Cancer Agency, where they actually centralize all the inviting patients, uh, identifying those patients uh, that would be eligible for screening and follow-up. And really, we're in our development phase, and one of our initiatives is around the education and awareness campaign. So. I think you've touched a lot on that. We're trying to find out um, from various jurisdictions what has been an effective campaign in terms of educating the GPs and even the specialists, uh, as well as the uh, patient population and then the evaluation measures. So I think most of my questions have been addressed, um, but it's more of directing me into those areas. And we've also done an international review as well uh, on this issue. If one wanted, thank you so much, and interesting to, uh, to, to hear from you and about your, your project. If one wanted to know more about uh, the work that's underway, uh, is there a, a, a website one could turn to? Uh, there is no website, but they can just email me. We only just launched our provincial territorial action group in January of this year. Okay. And we've got some, you know, groundwork to do. We're working very closely with our ministry and the cancer agency. And one of the first uh, phase of the work of the cancer agency to develop a prototype as to what's the best programmatic for a, a colorectal cancer screening program. I mean, you can have the best operations and the best people around the table, but it comes down to this participation issue, and then even just how do you educate the you know the GPs into that whole change management process of having them integrated into their practice. And that's why I was quite interested in this session accordingly. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I won't, I won't press you to give your email <laughs> on a conference. Oh, no. Feel free to. I, I don't mind. I, yeah. mean, I think it's the power of the network to learn from each other. Okay. All right. So do, do you want to share that? Pardon me? Oh, if you, you want, want to, to give it out now? If, if you can, or you know what you could do? You could just, if you feel like it after, I'll, uh, as I close out the call, I'll be mentioning a web-based discussion. If you'd like to, maybe you might uh, just, uh, you know, log on to that and, and, and share whatever information you're comfortable with. You know what? I'll just give it to you. It's probably easier this way. It's just <laughs> S-W-A-I uh -huh. at yep. cancer.ca. Yep. Okay. 
And I'm based in Vancouver. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, Chuck or Bill, any thoughts? No, it sounds like an interesting program. I wish we did population-based programs here. Right. Okay. That's what I was sort of thinking as I uh, pressed uh, for some contact information. Thanks very much for that call. Uh, uh, Angela, anyone else in queue? That was our last question. Okay. Well, maybe some people, we still have some minutes here. Um, I wanted to ask uh, really both of you, but maybe start with Chuck. Uh, when age is the main sort of trigger here uh, for uh, a discussion about uh, colon cancer screening and perhaps the most preferred method of a colonoscopy, how would a group uh, some kind of group assembly uh, assembling uh, be advantageous here uh, where symptoms aren't so much of an issue or uh, perhaps something, uh, some worry because of something that might be uh, inherited. Uh, and in groups, you're talking about like group visits? Yes, match? exactly. When people, yep. I was thinking about the previous caller talking about the, you know, uh, the constraint of the 20-minute visit, and I'm just trying to figure out about some of this kind of education piece. A lot of patients, it seemed to me, uh, and I think people were reinforcing this, some are interested in kind of the latest data. A lot of folks know that the whole uh, technology and methodology around this is, is continues to change and evolve. So people want to know the latest. So when would a group visit and a group sort of discussion be useful? Well, I think that group visits have a lot of potential for things like this. The challenge I think we have in our medical practices is in communicating with our population. In this case, it would even be getting the word out that you're going to have such a session because you have so many people who are over 50. And you have, and, and by and large, most people have a very, most practices have a very poor knowledge as to who is due for what, which of their patients are due for colon cancer screening. And that is true even in the electronic environment for a lot of different workflow issues uh, and reasons. So the, this issue of our ability to communicate with our, with our population of patients is really a challenging one. If you're going to have a group visit, say it's a great idea, we're going to, because colon cancer screening is an important thing, we're going to have a group session. We could talk to 20 people, 50 people at the same time, show them a video, give them handouts, let them make the decision. Wonderful idea. How do you identify who's the appropriate target audience and then how do you communicate with them? Most practices don't have email addresses of their patients and they're not communicating with people electronically anyway. Um, uh, that would mean that you'd have, to, you'd have to identify folks who are due, which most practices have a very hard time doing uh, in any sort of efficient manner. They'd have to generate a letter. They'd have to send that letter out. They'd figure out who's going to come, have the appropriate space, which most practices don't have. Uh, and so even that kind of simple communication is a real challenge. Um, and uh, uh, it wasn't Carl from Palo Alto Medical Foundation. I can't remember who it was, but I appreciate all the comments. I always appreciate the work that they, they, they do at Palo Alto Medical Foundation. Uh, uh, reference some of the issues. Um, for many practices, even if you can identify who is due, there's a, there's a big problem at having the resources just to get, on, get onto the phone and call all those people. Mm -hmm. uh, and, right. and so uh, what that begs is, is a whole issue of how do we communicate with our whole population, with sub-segments of our population, for example, those who are due for specific services in any sort of efficient manner when we are still so dependent upon the phone and so far away from real electronic care and electronic connectivity with our population. Okay. Of course, that is where we need to go, and that does solve 
a lot of these things because then you send out a link and say, hey, you're due for colon cancer screening. Attached is both a document and a link to send you to, right. you know, to a, uh, an educational video or something like that. Okay. All appropriate things to think about. All right, uh, Bill, thoughts about that? Are you any any experience at all with sort of efforts to move towards any kind of group-based approach? No, we haven't used groups in my practice. My concern is the one I voiced earlier, that is we move in the direction of, for instance, communicating with our patients by email. What's the message to our patients who don't have access to email? We have yes. to make sure that we remember those folks as well. Right. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely, good point. Uh, Bill, I wanted to ask you, uh, since w one of the issues that I'm aware of that are constantly bandied about has to do with the virtual <laughs> colonoscopy, which is one reason that some people hold off uh, making a decision, hoping that uh, something will come along uh, that seems less invasive uh, and more appealing. Yeah, uh, it's a wonderful uh, marketing name, isn't it, virtual colonoscopy? <laughs> right. uh, I think the most telling fact about virtual colonoscopy is that there was a study done in which pa patients had so-called virtual colonoscopy and standard colonoscopy back-to-back. -back. As you might imagine, the only place this could be done was in the Army. Uh, but they asked people afterwards, if you had to have one of these again, which would you prefer? and people preferred the standard colonoscopy. So I think the virtual colonoscopy, for several reasons, is not ready for prime time yet. Okay, all right, so people should not, that we might not put that into a decision-making system. No, only to say it's don't get it. <laughs> and, and don't count on it anytime soon. Uh, Angela, we're, we're sort of coming to the top of the hour. Uh, is, have we left anybody uh, languishing in queue at all? Yes, we do have a couple questions. All right, let's see if we can't at least get one person in there. Okay, our next question comes from Jill Olmsted with St. Joseph Heritage Health Foundation. Your okay. line is now open. Thank you. Uh, I want to thank you for this opportunity to participate and author in the room. I think this is exceptional. I'm a nurse practitioner in California, and I specialize in gastroenterology. It happens to be actually after, at, right now, California Coalition Task Force on how we can improve our screening rates in the state of California. Our screening rates at this time is only 40 percent. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Taylor, your article was exceptional at highlighting a common dilemma. And the only question I had was that why did you not highlight the combination of fecal occult blood testing with the combination of sigmoidoscopy? Because I know there have been several studies that shows that does show there's an improvement in colon cancer detection. Yeah. Um, well, the, the, my feeling about fecal occult blood testing uh, is that it is a, a pretty bad test. Uh, it, has, uh, it makes sense that it's a bad test because most colon cancers and adenomas, which is what you'd be looking for to find early, don't bleed, and most of what ends up with a positive test isn't colon cancer or a, uh, a polyp. Uh, there's a plausible argument that's been made that the reason fecal occult blood testing appears to reduce the death rate from colon cancer uh, is because so many false positives occur, uh, possibly at random, that people are sent off to colonoscopy, and it's the colonoscopy that saves the lives. So that uh, I don't believe that this is where we ought to be putting uh, a lot of effort. Okay, thank you, and thank you very much for that question and for tuning in today. Let's try, Angela, real quick to get one more in. All right, our next question comes from James Schulzer with Bedford VAMC. Your line is now open. Thank you. Uh, Bill, I wanted to just ask, 
um, in your practice how you uh, try to make use of some of this epidemiology data. Maybe it just gets to the decision aid, but for me it was very helpful to even remember or know that this particular lady had a 0.2% uh, likelihood of getting cancer in the next year and 2.6% in the next 10 years. It's data like that that it's hard for me to pull out and present to my patients in a practical way. Any uh, hints or suggestions you found of ways to sort of gather some of that information and make it available when you're seeing patients? Great question. Yeah, it is a great question. Unfortunately, it's not easy to get your hands on data like that. I had to go rummaging around to try to figure out the answer to that. We, you know, we blithely uh, say that what we want to do in this circumstance is, is do things for patients when the benefits exceed the risk. Uh, but it, embedded in that notion is some sort of quantification. How, how big is the benefit? Uh, how great is the risk? Uh, when does the benefit happen? When does the risk happen? And numbers like those you alluded to are crucial in figuring that out. I, I, I find most useful this number needed to treat or number needed to screen kind of a, a calculation. So when you get uh, take that 2.6% uh, chance in 10 years, that, that comes out to the idea that you'd have to do 55 colonoscopies to find one, uh, to do one where you might find a colon cancer. And, of course, finding colon cancer is not the purpose of colonoscopy. It's helping the patient have a better outcome because you found something. So mm -hmm. you need to, therefore, do a lot more than 55 uh, uh, to find one where uh, you might do some good. And that starts to put it in a, in a context, I think. Thank you very much, and um, I appreciate, I, I want to apologize if anybody was left in queue. We're at the top of the hour, so we're going to need to wrap up. Um, there will, however, be a web-based discussion group available on IHI's website for anyone who'd like to continue a conversation with one another. To find the link to this web-based conversation, go to IHI.org, look under Community, then discussion groups, then author in the room. In order to view or take part in the discussion group, you do have to register with IHI.org, but that's free and simple to do so. Okay, I want to give Bill Taylor and Chuck Kylo, each of you, an opportunity to just uh, share some final remarks, uh, some things to leave us with today, uh, lots of interesting issues that came up today. Uh, why don't we start with you, Bill Taylor? Well, thank you. I appreciate the uh, opportunity to be part of this. I think the most interesting thing for me has been to listen to the discussion and especially uh, the people who got into the systems issue and, uh, and Chuck's help in terms of how we would improve our systems because I agree wholeheartedly with Chuck's comment that it is, it's important for clinicians to understand these issues, to know what to do, but it's in improving these systems that we're actually going to improve the way we uh, uh, improve the care for our patients. All right. Thank you very much. Chuck? I only wish we had more time, Matt, and uh, I really appreciate your help, and I really appreciate uh, Bill's brilliant article. I think it was just fantastic. Absolutely. Laid out a really, really interesting set of areas and, and lot to build upon there. Uh, one of these issues I'm sure we all hope we can kind of visit again. So thank uh, both of you. Thanks to both of you. Author in the Room is a monthly series. It takes place the third Wednesday of every month from 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern Time, uh, notwithstanding our May 31st call, which wasn't the third Wednesday, but that is when Author in the Room uh, takes place. Our next discussion takes place on June 21st 
The topic will be the article, Effectiveness of Collaborative Care for Older Adults with Alzheimer's Disease in Primary Care, with the first author, Dr. Christopher M. Callahan. The article appears in the May 10th issue of JAMA. Details about this on the IHI and JAMA websites. And don't forget, today's call uh, will be made available as an audio file for immediate streaming and through iTunes as a podcast. De details for this are under the program section of IHI.org. Author in the Room is an interactive conference call designed to accelerate changes that can improve clinical practice. The project is a collaboration between the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, generously funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Again, thanks to our guests and to all of you for being part of Author in the Room. I'm Madge Kaplan of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Good day, everyone.